All right, how many of you guys love Christmas? Yeah, today, uh, turn me down just a little bit, I think. So today, tonight, we always drive to Sacramento or to Redding. That's where I'm from Sacramento. And my wife's from Redding. Redding. It's just a hick town up north. So. Um, but we always drive up there. And we have three kids. And most of the time, it's like a terribly ungodly drive. And so we've decided to always drive through the night now. Because the kids fall asleep quickly. And then we can just have our time together in the front seat. So I love Christmas. I get to see old friends. Get to hang out with family. And we always talk about, at Christmas time, keeping Christ the center of Christmas, right? And I think one way to keep Christ the center of Christmas is not just to say that a lot, but to think and check our attitude. To check our hearts. And to think, are we modeling Christ? Do we have the posture, the mindset, the heart of Christ? So think about this. Christ was sent by the Father to display the Father's heart. And He could have sent down from heaven just a script or just some highlight details of who God is. But He decided to put on flesh, right? And He showed us how to live, how to talk, how to interact with people. And he was a giver. He didn't take. He loved even when he wasn't being loved. And so when we get around Christmas time, I think it's good for us to think, am I living the mission of Jesus? The mission of God? Am I giving in my life? Or am I expecting to receive? Am I, expect, am I looking to love like God? Or am I wanting people to love me and build me up and encourage me? And one of the greatest things that Jesus brought was the gospel, right? This good news, this great news. So a verse that most of us know, John 3.16... Just think about the good news in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then think about the next verse. He did not come to condemn the world but to save the world. Or think about later in John where it says, Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. 
Now, what if Jesus were just to say to us, You know, I was just kidding. I was joking. All those big promises I made to you, it's a big joke. I don't intend to fulfill any of it. I just wanted to get your hopes up and then let you down. But God doesn't do that, right? You see, when I read the Bible, sometimes it's hard to believe, right? It's definitely hard to live. But my default in reading Scripture is, this is true. God made these promises and God intends to keep these promises. That's my default. That's what I assume to be true of God. But when people hear you speak, when people hear you make promises, make a covenant, make an oath, do they assume the same thing on you? When they hear you say something like, I'm going to do that, do they think you're actually going to do it? Because here's one thing that we love to say to each other. Larry, I'm going to pray for you. Sure. Sure you are. That's just the Christian thing to say just to get out of a conversation, right? Hey, it's been good talking to you. I'll pray for you. Right? Or in my household, what my kids do is when we try to get them to do something and they're trying to emphasize that they really mean it, they're like, I pinky swear. I pinky swear I'm going to do it. Or we say, I've heard friends say, I swear on my mother's grave. She's not dead, but I swear on my mother's grave that I'm going to do it. So what we do is we add all these disclaimers. And our word is not enough. Our word used to be enough. So this passage today is all about keeping our word. It talks about keeping our word in marriage. And then it talks about keeping our word with one another. Now, why is this so important? Okay, what's the mission of this church? So, we are to be a community of people that represent God, right? Okay. So, there's not a lot of people in this neighborhood that are reading the Bible, right? They're not. If they want to find out about God, most of the time people look to people who believe in God to see what God's like. So whether you like it or not, people are looking at you to see what God's like. Now if God says, I'm going to always keep my word to you, 100% of the time, He's faithful. If He says something, He's going to do it. Now are we representing Him well? If we're His priests, His ambassadors, are we representing Him? Or are we displaying to the, wor- the world those believers, they can't keep their word. So I wonder if God is going to be able to keep His word. That makes sense? There's a lot at stake here. 
We want our yes to be yes and our no to be no so that people can not only count on us, but they can count on God. So before we get into this passage today, I want to do a little review. And we have a slide here to bring us up to speed with where we've been. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus is trying to do, He's trying to bring a new culture. He's taking the old culture, bringing a new culture. And so the first few verses of the Sermon on the Mount are all about the Beatitudes, the Blesseds. And so the first three verses talk about a life without. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. And then blessed are the meek. And so we are to empty ourselves of ourselves. And we're to be okay with it. We're to be okay when we're not well known. We're to be okay when people speak ill of us. What God has called us to is to empty ourselves of ourselves. Everything Jesus said, deny yourself. Deny your own desires. Put off yourself, right? So it starts with this emptying of self. And then the next few verses, once we empty ourselves, then we fill ourselves with Him. We begin to live like Him righteously. We begin to be merciful, full of peace and purity. So this is the rhythm. Think of it like this. I have to empty myself of myself so I can be filled with Him. And when I'm filled with Him, I can begin walking like Him. Now I think when I walk like Him, things will go well, things will, everyone will enjoy it, everyone will speak well of me. But it talks about people are going to speak ill of you. People are going to slander you, speak evil. Then it goes on, and Britt talked about this a few weeks ago, that as I walk like Him, I'm to serve others. I'm to be this light of this world. I'm to be the salt of the earth. And then he wraps the whole passage up. I actually don't have it on the screen there. And it talks about that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, remember that, but to fulfill the law. And so as we look at Jesus, He's a perfect fulfillment of the law. And we are called, when people look at us, we're to be this fulfillment of the law. We're to model, to incarnate, to display the law. So that's the first part of the Beatitudes. That's the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now there's this repeated phrase in the latter part of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said. You guys remember that? Britt talked about it. Trent talked about it. I'm going to talk about it this week. Josh will talk about it next week. It says again and again, you have heard that it was said. So there was this wrong culture that he's trying to correct. You guys know, like, most of you look to like Brit and Nydia, for example, or the leaders of this church. What is it like to have a godly marriage? 
What do they say about parenting? What do they say about finances? Well, in that culture, everyone was listening to the rabbis, listening to the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And they were saying things that were not in line with Scripture. So basically, Jesus is saying, you've heard from these rabbis, these religious leaders, whatever. But I say to you this instead. So he's trying to correct them because what had happened is they had put their sayings, their teachings, their traditions above what God's Word said. And so today when we look at this passage, you're going to see Jesus correcting them on oaths and also correcting them on marriage and divorce. So let's look at the first two verses. It says this, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So marriage is pretty fantastic, right? 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 Amazing. Especially when you think of it in your head, it's pretty amazing, right? When you watch a romantic film or something, it looks amazing. A man, a woman, in love with each other, they come together until death do they part, and everything's perfect. Now, let's look back at the creation of marriage. Marriage is not something that the laws of this land just came, about, came, came up with. It's not something that the government came up with. But it's something that God came up with. And I think it's pretty fantastic when the government actually agrees with God. When the government says the same thing that God says. So if you go back to Genesis, we'll put this verse on the screen. Just in the second chapter, earlier it said, it's not good that man be alone. And then it says here, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So this is marriage. The first description of marriage. God created animals, God created heaven and earth, the trees, the stars, the sun, and He created marriage. A man and a woman coming together. And it says that they're going to leave and they're going to cleave. They're going to be glued together. Now, I think often that marriage is just for us. It's for our benefit. It's because God wants us to be happy. If that was the case, I should stay married as long as I'm happy. Because God wanted me to be happy. If that was the only purpose of marriage, I should only stay married as long as I'm happy. But Ephesians talks about the ultimate purpose of marriage. Look at the next verse. Now this is Paul. 
Este es Pablo. He's a writer of scripture. Él es un Él sobre la he's looking back on Genesis. Él está a Genesis. And he's saying, you know that verse in Genesis 2? Where I talked about a man leaving a man leaving his father and mother and being joined together. There's more going on than just marriage. Just happiness. He quotes it. He says, "Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Notice what he says. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So look at verse 32. This mystery is profound. It's talking about marriage. I mean, we all know women are mysterious, but here it's talking about marriage. There's a mystery in marriage. And it says it refers to Christ and the church. So we often look at marriage on the surface. It's this love, falling in love, this commitment between a man and a woman. But God is saying this union, this leaving and cleaving, this marriage isn't just about them. I created it. So people would see my love for my people. As it says, Christ's love for the church. So do you realize that whether you like it or not, when you choose to get married, you're entering into the mission of God. And you might have got married for your own reasons. You might have got married just because you wanted to be happy. But God has you married to display His love for His people. Now, you all know that marriage isn't that pretty often, right? It's not as great as we think. A good friend of mine, he got married four or five hours after his marriage. He was regretting it. Four or five hours. So you know as time goes on, things happen. And we regret it. Our spouse... Our bride is not as beautiful as we once thought she was. We realize that our husband is disgusting, right? Well, think about this. Marriage between a man and a woman illustrates God's love for us not when things are picture perfect not when things are going well but when things are tough when you feel like you can't continue okay a few months ago I talked about Hosea remember that prophet in the Old Testament God had all these spokespeople these spokesmen that spoke for him Hosea, what he was to do was to go marry a woman, a prostitute. 
God wanted Hosea to marry Gomer, this woman that was going to be unfaithful to him. And he wanted this unideal marriage, this troubled and problematic marriage between Gomer and Hosea to illustrate the type of marriage that God was experiencing with his people. And he said to Hosea, I want you to continue to be faithful to her even when she's unfaithful to you. I want you to continue to forgive her even when she continues to wrong you. And I wanted to illustrate the type of unconditional, self-sacrificing love I have for my people. Now, let's get back to the passage and we'll continue here with this idea of marriage. Next. So it says again, it was also said, he's trying to correct something here with this marriage. Notice how they've made marriage about themselves. It says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, just, just let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So this is what they were doing. This was the culture, this was the understanding of the day. If you went to your pastor and said, I'm thinking about getting a divorce. What they would say is, just make sure you fill out the paperwork correctly. So it says, all you got to do is just fill out this certificate. Doesn't matter the reason. But if you want to divorce your wife, just make sure she has the right piece of paper. You see, they were divorcing their spouses for any and all reasons. And what they were doing is they were quoting Moses. They're like, Moses said we could. Look at this next passage. This is later in Matthew. It says, they said to him, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what he's saying here is this. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, they're saying, why did Moses command this? And Jesus is not saying they commanded it. He's saying because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed it. You see, in Deuteronomy 24, what took place was Moses was watching men divorce their wives for any and all reasons. And these women were going off and they weren't protected. And they were being accused of being adulterers just because their dirtbag husband divorced them. And so Moses wrote at the end of the Torah in Deuteronomy 24, Moses wrote this short little passage to protect women. This certificate was to protect them so that they would be provided for and that their reputation wouldn't be shamed. 
He also wrote in Deuteronomy 24, what would happen if a man divorces his wife? And his intent in writing it was to discourage divorce, not to give prescription to divorce. So track with me. The religious leaders, they looked at the law and they took from it what would suit their own pleasures. And we do this often. We'll look at scripture through our messed up life and we'll tweak it, we'll massage it to get it to say what we want it to say. So two times in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 5 and chapter 19, Jesus is having to tweak and correct their misunderstanding and divorce. Basically what he's saying is, you can't just write a certificate of divorce if you don't like your wife anymore. The only reason why you are allowed, not commanded, but allowed to divorce your wife is if she has been unfaithful to you. That's the only reason. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to reestablish the foundation of marriage, the purpose of marriage. So let's get back to this. Divorce is hard, right? How many of you guys have either been divorced or have parents who have been divorced or relatives that's been divorced? How many of you guys would say that you've been affected negatively from divorce? Lots of us, right? Marriage is all about leaving and cleaving. It's like glue. When you glue or weld something together, is it easy to take apart? Does it hurt to take off a band-aid? Yeah. Right? When you weld something or glue something together, like if I were to put super glue on this side of the paper and stick it on the wall, what would happen? When I tried to take it apart, this would rip, some of the paint would stick to this, and some of the paper would stay on the wall. It's messy, right? So a lot of you have experienced the pain, the heartache, the damage of divorce, right? I mean, we have written prenuptial agreements about assets and properties and finances, right? And then we have the unwritten prenuptial agreements. If you don't meet my needs anymore, or if you're not as beautiful as you were on the wedding day, or desirable, you know what, I'm going to ditch you and divorce you. But get this. Do you realize that God married us when we were not picture perfect? Sarah married me at my best. I mean, I was looking fine, right? I mean, I was at my best. No gray hair. No little, Trent, what do we call this? Muffin top. No little muffin top. Nothing. And it was all downhill for Sarah from there, for me. 
We marry people when they're acting right. When they're living up to everything they said they would do and be. But think of this verse in light of marriage. Romans 5.8. It's a verse that a lot of us know. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God married us when we were awful, filthy, wretched sinners. God married us not when we were walking down the aisle in our white wedding dress, but went in a wedding dress that was contaminated and dirtied and polluted with sin and mud and gunk and grease. You see, God married us at our worst. He showed the greatest extent of love. He put, he put His best foot forward when we put our worst foot forward. So think about this. We are to model to the world a love that our Father in Heaven had towards us. Our husband Jesus had towards His nasty, polluted, disgusting, yet to be purified bride. He remained faithful to us despite our shortcomings and sins. He continually and constantly forgave us despite us wandering away. So if God had this type of love to us when we were awful, filthy, wretched sinners, what do you think models Christ's love in marriage best? I mean, obviously Sarah and I display God when we're loving each other. I love her, she loves me. I scratch her back, she scratches my back. I rub her head, she rubs my head. I encourage her, she encourages me. But what if I loved her even when she snapped at me? What if she forgave me even when I continued to fail her? Most people don't see that in marriage. Somebody snaps at a spouse, what does the spouse do? They just mirror it back. You're going to be a jerk to me, I'm going to be a jerk to you. You're not going to love me, I'm not going to love you more. You're going to have a grudge towards me, I'm going to have a longer grudge towards you. Right? But if we want to model love, if we want to model the gospel, we can't do like this passage says. I'm just going to divorce my wife and walk away from her, walk away from him, just whenever she's not meeting or he's not doing what he said he would do. You see, marriage is not about you. Get that. Marriage is not about you. In marriage, God is projecting His love, His forgiveness, His kindness towards us. 
So let's continue with the passage here. Let me just say one more thing. If you guys have been divorced, if you guys have broken that bond that God put together, the last thing I want you to do is beat yourself up and say, I'm terrible. I failed God. I messed up what God wanted to do through me. Let me just say this. Welcome to the club. Yeah, sure, you messed up what God wanted to do through you. And I do that every day. I mess things up. God has these amazing plans for me. And I blow it. So God continues to show us forgiveness, right? He continues to show us mercy. So if you've been the victim of divorce or if you've been the cause of divorce just know that God can bring amazing grace and mercy and hope so I don't want you to be discouraged rather than looking back look back through the lens of grace and forgiveness and look forward also through the lens of grace and allow God to work with you as you move forward So the last part of this passage transitions out of... Next verse. He's still talking about keeping your word, not only in marriage, but also with everyone else, with one another. And notice verse 33. This same phrase. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." So it talked about keeping our word in marriage. And here it's about keeping our word with one another. Again, what they were doing, they were looking at this one verse. You shall not swear falsely. Verse 33. But you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn to do. And it said in Scripture, you shall not swear by the Lord. You know how people say, I swear to God, I will do X, Y, Z. Well, they were obeying that command. But what they were doing, I swear by heaven. I swear by earth. I swear by my head. And so what they were doing is they were continuing to disobey the command, but they were just swearing by different things because their word wasn't good enough. And all he's saying here is, what I meant by that command was, can your yes be yes and your no be no? If you're going to say something, Think about what you're going to say and what you're going to promise and actually do it. And if you say you're not going to do something, actually follow through and don't do it. You see, 
What's at stake here? The good news, the gospel, came to us through words, right? God spoke words. What if we, as a church, had to read the Bible and try to discern which words did He really mean and which words could we disregard? Which words weren't serious? Which words were, was he maybe joking with us? Or he wasn't being legit? Everything God spoke, he meant. Everything God said he would do, he intends to do. Just like in marriage, when I stood on that stage before Sarah, and I made that vow, I made those oaths to her, I intend to keep every one of them. And in this passage, it's talking about just everyday life. If we're going to say something, we need to actually do it. And again, this brings us full circle to where I started the message. We need to be able to be counted upon. People need to know that our words matter. I tend to be kind of sarcastic. I like sarcasm. Right? It's funny. I think I'm a pretty funny person. My wife's rolling her eyes. She doesn't think I am. But I'm, I'm pretty funny. And one of my methods of being funny is being sarcastic. Not really intending what I'm saying. But I think a passage like this should convict me and remind me that I need to be aware of what I'm saying. Because people are looking at me as, and they're expecting me to actually mean and intend to fulfill what I'm, what I'm saying I will do. Because us, us Christians have this right reputation of being a little bit hypocritical, right? We say one thing, we do another. We make emphatic claims, I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to live like Jesus. We make these big statements and then we fall so far short of fulfilling them. In fact, we say one thing and we intend to do the complete opposite. Because we love to sound good, although we live completely differently. Now think about the culture. The religious leaders were great at cleaning the outside of their pot. They were great at projecting a righteousness, a, a facade of godliness, this mask that they had it all together. And a lot of you in here, you're good at like walking through these doors on Sunday and kind of putting on the front, right? I got it going on. I'm good. Some of you show up late just so you don't have to talk too long to people and not really be real. I know why you show up late. Some of you guys leave early because you don't want to really get in deep conversation with people. The culture of that day was great at putting up that facade. Great at looking good. They were fantastic at talking the right talk. But what Jesus is confronting here, your words are meaningless. 
Or what I've said to people is sometimes our words carry no weight. They carry... There's nothing to them. They're just these words that you just dismiss. And you know what I was saying? Like, we have it here even in this church. I'm going to pray for you. And do we really pray for them? Oh yeah, I'll be there on Saturday to help you move. And then they don't show up. Or no, I'll take care of that. Don't worry, you can count on me. And that doesn't necessarily mean anything. You see, what's at stake here is the gospel. What's at stake is our witness. You guys might not think that it's any big deal to not keep your word. You might think that the fallout or the ramifications of not you not keeping your oath in marriage or keeping your word with one another really affects anyone. But get this, if they can't trust you and what you say, do you realize, since they already assume you're representing God, it at least causes them to be a little bit suspicious of whether or not they can trust God. If, they, if these Christians can't keep their love in marriage to one another, even when they wrong each other, if they abandon and forsake their commitment, will God forsake His commitment to me even when I wrong Him? If, they, if, these, if these Christians can't do what they said they would do because it's too hard or it costs too much, will God really keep His word to me because it might be too difficult? So I want you to consider that. We've even in our own house tried to take pinky promises out. You guys might think, that's, that's a little weird. Who cares? It's a little kid thing. But I want my kids to mean what they say. I want them always to hear from me. Whenever I speak, they know that I intend to do what I say I will do. And my kids have the most amazing memory. I'll say, hey, tomorrow night I'll lay in bed with you and hang out. I don't even remember saying that. But the next night, they remind me of exactly what I said. And if I don't do it, it might seem like, ah, it's no big deal, buddy. I'm tired, I'm worn out, spent a long day. I'm like, I'll do it tomorrow night. Tomorrow night comes and goes. And I don't do it again. You might think like I do, it's not that big of a deal. But what is it communicating? Daddy's not that trustworthy. He doesn't really intend what he says. Or walking into our apartment complex. We see somebody that's just sad and depressed. And we look at them and we're like, you're having a rough day. Can I help? Is there something I can do? And rather than, than them just saying, hey, I'm fine, don't worry about it, they actually say, yeah, I actually do need help. I just need somebody to watch my kids. I just need someone to talk to. And what if you just 
in the moment you look totally sincere and you say I'll be there for you I'm going to help you I'm going to come alongside of you and then you move on out of sight out of mind you forget what are they then thinking of you honestly big deal what are they thinking of God this person they're this Christian they don't really love me they look all pretty they say the right things but there's no legitimacy there's no truth to what they're saying this is what's at stake the gospel the word God's word is at stake so even if you have to say no to people even if you have to pause and second guess what you're about to say to somebody I think that's better than making a promise that you can't keep swearing an oath by heaven by your mother's grave whatever it might be then not keep what you say you're going to do let me just conclude with this one thought as elders Josh Britt myself Trent as best as we can we're trying to set a culture here that mimics that exemplifies what's in the word a kingdom culture we're trying to do that so that when you guys read the word read about parenting or about marriage or evangelism or discipleship we want you guys to be able to look at us and say that's what it looks like here's the command here's how they live it out but just so you know you might think otherwise Brit's not perfect Josh, Trent, myself we're not perfect we can fall into the same trap as these religious leaders and set a culture where we exalt our tradition above what the word of God says and so I would encourage you I would welcome you guys as you see things in our lives as you see us setting a wrong kingdom culture to confront us to approach us and don't be annoying come alongside of us and graciously just show us things in our life we want to be refined because the last thing that I want to fall into the trap of is being a religious leader like these that Jesus was confronting I want us to be exemplifying every bit of a kingdom culture so let me pray for us Father we pray that you would help us to exemplify you through our words Lord it is hard to love people when they're not lovely it's hard to show compassion and grace to people when they're harsh and rude towards us Lord it's also hard to keep our word to others when life gets crazy and life gets out of hand and unexpected things come up it's hard Lord so I pray that in those moments when we want to 
to ignore what we said we would do, when we want to recant on our vows and our promises, I pray, Father, that you would help us in those moments to follow through, to do what we say we would do, what we intended to do. So, Father, I pray that you would allow our word to be trustworthy as your word is trustworthy. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.